As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. We take this privilege very seriously and we know we are giving the last version of that story potentially to the public and to the families of people who've passed and it's incredibly important that we do that well. We've spoken a great deal on this show over the years about the work of our state coroners and today we finally get to meet one. Levake Peterson was appointed a coroner by the Victorian State Government in February 2020. 
after serving for several years as the Assistant Victorian Government Solicitor through Royal Commissions into both the mental health and the aged care systems. Before that, she represented 77 local councils during the 2009 Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission. It has to be said that throughout her legal career, Coroner Peterson has chosen to take on some big, uncomfortable challenges. We'll find out why she finds that kind of law interesting and also what being a coroner actually entails. Because even though coronial inquests are reported on in the news every day, most of us still misunderstand a great deal about their purpose and procedures. For one thing, Levesque is one of 13 Victorian coroners. Some of you may know there's more than one coroner, but I bet some of you didn't. I didn't until very recently. I'm sure there are lots of other things you're about to learn in this episode, and we'd love to hear from you about it. Please leave us a voicemail using the link in the show notes or at our Facebook page so we can discuss your thoughts in our episode download show on the Australian True Crime Plus subscriber channel. You can join up to hear that show on iTunes or using that special link in the show notes. For now, though, we begin our conversation with Victorian coroner Levake Peterson and a question I've been asked by victims' families more than once. Why do we need to go through an inquest when we already know our loved one's cause of death? Everyone often thinks they know what happened and um, what's really important is that we do a thorough investigation that's not based on media um, reports or um, things that you see or hear on the news. There's often a nuance to a death that um, may well need to be explained. Sometimes there can be a public interest that the public may not be aware of at the time, but our investigations demonstrate that there's either a systemic gap that needs to be filled or that there's something else that we could achieve by way of making recommendations that would improve the lot for Victorians more broadly, the yeah. community. So it's things like I often say to people, you know, this is how we ended up with seatbelts, for example. In Correct. Cars, right? Absolutely. And laws making um, helmets compulsory and things yes. like that. Yes. So we use data to help us, but data is very, um, I suppose, objective and hard for people to engage with data when you talk about the number of deaths over a period of years. But telling someone's story... Um, and giving the dead a voice and sometimes giving the family a voice can be far more engaging for the community and they will understand how and why we're making the recommendations that we have. Yeah. So, for example, Tanya Day. I mean, yeah. we had the whole um, Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and for years there was talk about doing something about public drunkenness, decriminalising it, but um, it takes a far more humanised story to engage the public, to galvanise public opinion um, and coroners can use that to make recommendations and make changes for the better. To put it into context for listeners, um, obviously she was an Aboriginal woman who was taken into custody because of public drunkenness and then while in custody she fell, is correct. that correct, and, and um, sustained a, a head injury? As I understand it. Mm -hmm. So this preceded my time at the court yep. Um, but the facts of the case are as you've suggested and the relevant coroner, Coroner English as she was then, made it clear that she was going to pick up the 
baton of decriminalising public drunkenness in an effort to well, to reduce the incidence of Aboriginal deaths in custody as much as could be done. Yeah. Obviously, that's only one tool. Absolutely. And that, that's, a you know, one case of, uh, in a very complicated and complex story. Absolutely. And mental health is the other one, obviously, and mental health services. You know, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, and I've said many times on this show that I read the findings on your website a lot at night time oftentimes for relaxation and um, and what I notice a pattern that I see oftentimes is people um, is you doing inquiries all of you um, coroners inquiring into the deaths of people who have been previously in mental health facilities and perhaps they have left recently before their deaths or you know um, perhaps they've discharged themselves or some circumstances like that, but there's a lot of mental health related to the inquiries that you make. That's not a coincidence, is it's it? It's not a coincidence and it's not a coincidence that there was a Royal Commission into mental health in, in the state of Victoria because um, it's reflected in the amount of deaths that do have some connection to mental ill health. Unnatural deaths. Absolutely, mm. yes. So um, so is, is that a suggestion that we're not taking very good care of our mentally ill people? I think it's a suggestion that we can always do better and that it, it is a continuous improvement um, spectrum and we'll never reach the end. We could always do a bit better is my hope and yeah. the hope is that we as coroners will always examine and investigate with a view to ensuring that that continues to occur. The coroner's court would have submitted to the Royal Commission because now the government's committed to putting all the recommendations in and it's really a big transformation of the mental health system. Yes. How will your office be linked in with that transformation? How do you think it's going to help with what they're doing? So the government committed to implementing all of the recommendations of the Royal Commission. We, as the Coroner's Court and our amazing Coroner's Prevention Unit, collect data on all um, issues that we can. And I'm assuming what we'll do is get some kind of baseline before and after. Uh, that's going to be a long-term project. But we will be able to see, and hopefully by investigating cases in the future, whether there has been an improvement or a reduced incidence or a shift in focus perhaps um, or a different part of the, the spectrum of mental health experience where there may be a problem. So we might shift from this X to Y and then we start to examine why. So The other thing that I find fascinating about your reach and your work as a coroner is like in some ways you have more power than the court, is that correct? Like you can compel um, people to give, to testify, yes. to give evidence. Within reason we can compel. We're a unique court in that we are inquisitorial. So ah. as opposed to criminal courts and civil courts where um, a judge will sit in judgment of the facts and the facts are brought to them, a coroner's role is to investigate um, from the beginning through to the end of the case. So we guide the investigation. So by compel, I mean make. Correct. You can force, as long as the police can find a person, you can make them come and give evidence? We can at least make them turn up to court yeah. and and see. I mean, obviously they can get representation. That would be my hope is that if someone was reluctant that we would hear why. Um, and there are methods under the legislation to enable us to give them some sort of reassurance or legislative protection in order to get to the bottom of the facts. Yeah. So we have a lot of tools available to us. 
um, the court is unique because we also don't necessarily need to adhere to the rules of evidence that occur in criminal or civil jurisdictions. Well, that's another point of frustration for families, isn't it? Because oftentimes families say, well, hang on, how come she said, well, I think this person died at this time as a result of an attack by that person and yet that person's not going to jail? Yeah, I, I mean... I couldn't speak for families in that situation, but you regularly read of families that are frustrated with the process because of the rules of evidence and because they couldn't hear that this person potentially had prior convictions for something similar. So those frustrations that occur for families in the criminal jurisdiction, certainly we have means and mechanisms to go outside, colour outside the lines, so to speak, um, and get to the bottom of the facts that we are required to prove, which is identity, circumstances of death and cause of death or passing. Because you can name, I find it fascinating, yeah. you, can, you can read a coroner's finding, it's like, we, we believe this person the whole person's was responsible. Of interest, the whole person's of interest or, thing is fascinating, isn't it? And yet they're walking around and I, I would feel that that would put a lot of pressure on the person who's been named, but then the police aren't able to mm. bring them to... I find that really fascinating and they're such um, useful documents, what you produce. Our documents or our findings are based on a lower burden of proof also. I need a level of comfortable satisfaction about a set of circumstances. To prove someone's guilt in a criminal jurisdiction, you require proof beyond reasonable doubt. That's a very different burden and there is a disconnect that must confuse the public at times. But for the coroner's court, it's because our remit is to, as far as possible, understand the circumstances and make recommendations in order to make the community safer and um, prevent these sorts of deaths from occurring in the future. So it's a different remit than obviously prosecuting a criminal case. I was shocked, though, to find out that it's not compulsory for the government or for anybody to take up your recommendations, is it, really? No, it's not compulsory uh, and nor should it be because coroners are only people who are make recommendations according to their own state of knowledge. Mm. It's not to say everything we would recommend may well be practicable for the government or the institution. So I am glad that it's not a mandated situation. Um, however, in terms of pressuring governments or other organisations to achieve change, we do have a system whereby that organisation or the government department must account to us publicly and respond to our recommendations within three months. And those things are up on our website and published on our website. Yeah. I mean, there are some famous cases, though, again, that are baffling, I think, for the public. The fact that there's never been an inquest into Carl Williams' death, for example, is baffling to me, and and I know to a lot of other people, but I can only speak to myself, for, for a prisoner to be murdered in the most secure unit of a prison in Australia for 20 minutes, nobody noticed that he was being bashed to death and then dragged back to his cell. I find that fascinating and baffling that there's never been an inquiry into that as to where everybody was, why no one was there in terms of the staff and no one was monitoring the security system. So why are things like that overlooked? I mean, who decides if there's going to be an inquest? Well, I don't know if anything's overlooked. Sometimes we are asked to do, we have a legislated job, which is to find identity, circumstances and cause. And and to look into systems too, though. So clearly there's to look systemic into systems. issues there. They usually arise as part of finding the circumstances of death. Um, each coroner has their own discretion. We're independent judicial officers. 
And so the experience and the way that that converts to how cases are dealt with will also vary. I can't speak to anything on the Carl Williams um, case. But who decides if there's an inquest? Like, is there a person who doles them out to you as no. the no, the coroners? Like, no. You- so let me tell you how we get our cases. Yeah. We uh, Each coroner has a duty day and we sit down with VIFM and all of the reportable deaths of the preceding 24 hours come in to the court and they come through the duty coroner and they become your cases unless there's a reason why you shouldn't keep them, a conflict of interest or knowledge of one of the parties or something like that. So that's how you get your cases. You have a great amount of discretion and responsibility as a coroner, therefore, how you deal with those cases. Ultimately, the decision is yours, guided within the legislative framework. So we make a lot of decisions on duty day in consultation with pathologists Mm. um, and you have experience of how they they go about their day-to-day business. We do that in consultation with them and once the case progresses from duty back into into the back end of the court, we start our investigations. We liaise with police or the appropriate regulatory body, it may be WorkSafe or a different body, and say, I would like statements on X, Y and Z. I would like policies and procedures. I'd like to get a feel for how this government department handles this issue. Um, I'd like to look at mental health interventions and see how they are. And then we, if need be, refer them to the wealth of experts that we've got in the court, Um, amazingly committed people with all sorts of different areas of expertise, and we consult with them and draw upon their experience to assist us in our investigations. What constitutes a reportable death? So if... Say I die at home, would I have a, yep. an inquest? If a death is unexpected, violent or um, the result directly or indirectly of an injury or a person is in custody or in care, they are the deaths that are reportable to the coroner's court. And that responsibility for reporting sits with a lot of different agencies uh, but they will come report the death and contact the police and that begins the process for us. So that's why there's a lot of findings on the website in nursing homes, health facilities. And this is a difficult question and thought to ask, what happens if a child dies? Is that always um, investigated or does it have the same benchmark as what you just mentioned? So the death of a child is obviously something that is usually unexpected. Uh, unless there is some kind of medical history that would give you every indication that it's a natural and expected outcome, most children's deaths are unexpected to the community at large. So they are usually the focus of some part of our investigation. That's not to say that it would carry on as a comprehensive investigation. That would be determined by the circumstance. But a lot of natural causes deaths may still have some aspect of systemic issues that we still want to investigate. So even natural causes deaths may well be of interest to a coroner. But I notice also when I'm reading findings that some cases are with an inquest and some are without an inquest. What's the difference there? So there is a public inquest where a coroner has made a determination that it's in the public interest to have this matter be done in open court so that the public can follow and understand the issues that are at stake and therefore give a good context for the recommendations that might follow. Given the amount of deaths that we do investigate per year, we simply couldn't do a court hearing for all of those deaths and many of those deaths do not require 
a court hearing. That's not to say they're not important, but they don't have, in most cases, a broader public interest that would require us to have an inquest. So I think it's only 5%, 1% of our matters actually go to a public inquest. The rest of those matters are dealt with internally with chambers findings, we call them, where we still do the same investigation, we make the same findings, we have the same legal framework, but we do it on paper. And why do they, when you read the findings, they'll, I think they always do, at least often do, have a pretty in-depth bio of the deceased. It'll have, you know, John Smith was born in this place at this time to these parents, grew up this way, worked there, married this person. It's quite an in-depth story that you tell about the person. Why is that? Because it's it's quite moving and um, troubling oftentimes when you read then sometimes about how their life fell apart, how they perhaps began to experience mental health issues and all of those things. And why is that important to go into the report? For me, it's important that they have a voice and that their story is told and that it might resolve issues for some family members. It might contextualise the death for members of the community who are free to read those findings online. So it's it's a voice for the dead. It is an important aspect of open justice also that we, we provide the context for our findings. Mm. Um, and sometimes those findings enable you to see commonalities and it's important that that is brought out in, a, in an open document that we can examine and say, okay, we've had 10 of those findings over the last 15 years. Is that a systemic issue that we need to pay attention to? It's critical that we have those stories be told. Yeah, it's not a dry document at all, no. is it? Sometimes it's not a dry document. No. I liked what you said about it being moving because I thought mm. about that because you would think the work of a coroner is quite dry, but it is actually, yeah, it's a story unfolding and I think it's actually very touching. It is. The scientific part of it, the autopsy results and stuff are very minimal. That's usually one sentence or two and the rest of it's very warm and biographical and um, it seems to be written by in a very caring way. Absolutely. I, I would hope and I think I can speak for the entire set of my colleagues that we take this privilege very seriously and we know we are giving the last version of that story potentially to the public and to the families of people who've passed and it's incredibly important that we do that well. Who researches and writes that? Uh, a variety of people at the court research and write them. The, the, the stories arise out of your investigation. It's important in your investigation to understand what may have prompted someone or caused something to happen in their life, for example, with mental illness, was there a part of this upbringing where something traumatised them? Do we need to know that in order to, in our database, prevent something like that or flag it better for people in future? So those parts of your story are incredibly necessary if we're going to do our job as well as we can. Um, we have teams of staff, including lawyers, that support the coroners and we all work together to provide those findings and yeah. to do it in a way that is respectful, hopefully. And, um, yes, I find them touching too. Mm -hmm. I think we all find the whole business of creating these findings quite a heavy responsibility. Something I was really, I've been really wanting to ask is, I've been listening a lot to some stuff from the UK actually where there's been some re-looking into deaths 
mainly of women, where it looks accidental, the police have said, oh, it's a suicide, but actually it's, it's murder. How do people go about getting a coroner to look at their case? We had some um, contact from someone at Australian True Crime whose sister died and very complicated story, but he's really convinced that her death was not suicide and he's desperately trying to get that looked into. So if someone feels like they want another look at something, what's the process for that? So contact the court, the coroner's court. There is a legal mechanism that you can use. It's usually based on new facts and circumstances that have to be established. So it would be important to understand what the investigation was, what grounds it traversed and whether there's anything that adds to that. And in the opinion of the coroner, um, it's, it's a discretionary situation where we might say, actually, I didn't understand that fully before. I may be willing to reopen. So it's, there is a, a provision in the legislation that allows you to do that. And we do, people ask us that a lot because, as you will know, there have been podcasts that have, you know, led to new inquiries and all sorts of things. So a lot of families do seek that. And the fact that you can have um, more than one inquest is fascinating, I think. I think it, it just goes to show that sometimes a story isn't over, yeah. even though we may have told the story to what we thought was the end. And new facts and circumstances, if they're presented and considered, should be. This is exactly what this court should be doing if it's required. Yeah. Well, we know that cold cases are solved all the time all because the time. relationships change, mm. people come forward, R- rewards science, are offered. innovation, yes. things like that happen. And this court does allow for that. Yeah, absolutely. We have to ask the question, uh, you know, about cases. I, I know we can't speak specifically about them, but cases that have stayed with you, that have troubled you. Have you ever had a mental health moment yourself where you've needed to take a break? What I find with the pathologists is that it's not been cases that have, you know, related to them personally in terms of, no, it wasn't when it was a child who was the same age as my child or someone who looked like my dad or anything like that. It's been sort of, it, it's like the trauma isn't literal. That's how I try, I try to describe it to people. It's not, it's like triggers aren't literal. It's something else. It's like it triggers something strange in your mind and in your heart, it seems to me. I think that um, for me, it's not a particular death or um, it's the human experience and how tragic it can be for someone before they pass. Yes, absolutely. And again, I go back to these reports of yours. When you read them, absolutely. When you read about someone's life and that no one was able to step in for them or that they weren't able to get the help that they needed. And some of them are clearly crying out. Absolutely. Yes, I understand what you're saying. So they're quite triggering for, for me personally. Mm-hmm. And I think the other one, if I'm going to be absolutely honest, is when I read about older people who may have been by themselves. It's really touching and sad for me as a coroner but as a human being to to think about that passing and to, I don't know, sometimes it, it gets to me that they're alone. Coming up on Australian True Crime, we continue our conversation with Coroner Levake peterson If you have a question for the coroner that we haven't asked, why not leave us a voicemail and then we'll give her a call and play her your question for our episode download show exclusive for Australian True Crime Plus members. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So now that you know a little bit about the work of the coroner, what do you think would be the most challenging aspect of the job? Victorian coroner Levake Peterson's chosen to work in challenging areas of the law for her entire career. But the hardest parts always seem to boil down to the most personal. How do you manage the expectations of families? Because I imagine that, you know, they have a lot of hope in what you're going to say or equally they might be really shocked by what you're saying. How do you navigate that? That is probably one of the most challenging things about the the role is that you know that there's going to be a high proportion of people that are always going to be unhappy with something you might do or some path not taken. And whilst I understand and I am um, empathetic towards their experience, there are only so many things that I can do within the legal framework in order to discharge my legal obligations. And sometimes I can't take paths that are suggested to me because they are not relevant to the inquiry into the the legal framework within which I operate. But managing families is done in a number of different pathways. At the coroner's court, we have amazing family liaison officers who work at the court and whose sole purpose is to assist families to get through this process. We are dealing with people at the very worst times of their lives and so there is an expectation that this could be a difficult road. Um, So we build in a lot of touch points to try and contact families, to try and give them support, 
to try and give them a voice. However, everything must be done within certain legal frameworks and expectations at some stage either need to be managed or some people may well be disappointed and that's something we just have to accept. And witnesses. I mean, you're juggling witnesses as well who are, I don't know if it's oftentimes, but sometimes are fearful, aren't they, of of giving evidence? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think anybody would be when they're being asked usually a number of years later, Mm. to recall something and they may well feel scrutinised for their decision-making and I get that. And the court is as informal as we can be within what we are required to do in order to assist people to give unfettered, candid evidence and to get to the facts and circumstances of the case. Yeah. It must be, I've never been, I've never sat in on a case and now I'm thinking, well, oh, God, why, why have I not? We should do a court day. No, I want to come to one of your gigs. Yeah, go to the Madges and yeah, then the court, yeah. coroner's court. But I imagine the, the atmosphere must be charged at times. I mean, I feel like your hair must stand up on end sometimes. I think that that's absolutely the case for any court proceeding, mm. but particularly poignant in the coroner's court sometimes mm. and um, it's, touching and it sits heavily on you as the responsibility. You, we do a really important job and we need to do it really well. What about when you're at a barbecue or something like that? Like we were saying, my, my kids have just started high school, so I'm required because they're full nerds to go to those barbecues, you know, of, yes. of an evening at school because they really want to go to them. So I, I'm meeting the other parents. Everyone's like, what do you do? What do you do? So when they say, oh, hey, um, like, what do you do? Um, and you go, I'm a judge in the coroner's court. I'm a coroner. Yeah, I don't often say that. What do you say? I work um, in a dress shop. So I'm in the public service. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm a public I, I do. I talk about being in the public service or being in the legal sector. Um, if I am really pressed on it and I do tell someone I'm a coroner, it's one of two things. It's absolute obsession with the idea of your job and a lot of questions or it's I don't really understand what you do. A lot of people think I might be some sort of doctor as well as lawyer. Mm, yes. Quincy. The, the, oh, the American, Quincy. Yeah, oh. me too. The yeah. American models, I think, don't necessarily give people an accurate insight into the job of a, the role of a coroner. So who is a coroner in Australia? Because I feel really ignorant right now. Are you a lawyer? Lawyers, lawyers you're, you're first not a, and foremost. Not Judicial officers, not okay. doctors. I was sitting here thinking that you're a doctor as well no. when you're a coroner. Sorry, everyone. That's what you have the VIFM, the pathologists for. That's right. And they perform they get autopsies. Because and, people think they have guns and wear leather jackets. Okay. So they... <laughs> I feel really silly because I was, I was thinking no. of Quincy. It is a medico-legal model mm. because... but. In our situation, we have a, an act, a legal act, so we are lawyers that implement the objects of that act and we are basing that on advice from very qualified uh, medical people. And it's a bi- as you said, it's a big pool of expertise that comes Absolutely. in. And it could be some cases may not need that much expertise but others might have to have heaps. Absolutely. The pathway is varied and and broad. Some cases will require medical expertise, a review of the clinical management and care of someone. Some cases will look at whether there was enough signage in a particular swimming area, a broad range of expertise. So, And we've got amazing committed people. We've also got an ability to go out and get further expertise external to the court where we need to. We in Victoria have this incredible facility because of the Lindy Chamberlain case being such a schmozzle and 
where there was no forensic evidence to convict this woman who was then wrongly convicted. And then, then the evidence that was presented was the um, The blood on the oh, car. Well, I don't even, yeah, yeah, and the matinee jacket and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So then um, when she was, when that conviction was quashed, that was the opportunity for this incredible forensic pathologist here in Victoria, in Geelong actually, Dr Plukan, beautiful name, to finally get the funding that he had been pushing for for a million years from the government to create this facility where the lawyers and the, where the coroner and the, and the pathologist could be in one building and actually work together and provide this world-class facility to make sure that it never happened again. It's really important. It's incredibly it? it's, important. It's, it's people's lives on the line. Yeah. And- the change in the legal system and the and the combination, the collegiate nature of, of the system here in Victoria is, is, is a new phenomenon really, isn't it? Yeah, Victoria is second to none mm. in the country in terms of the way that we've been able to bring innovation and um, changes in science and technology, DNA, into different areas of the courts. Now, the um, forensic science people are just amazing and we have had the benefit at the coroner's court of drawing that in and being co-located, which I think is hugely important for us. Mm. It just gives us ongoing face-to-face access that a lot of other jurisdictions don't have. Mm. And what are the emerging issues at the moment with what you're seeing or even in the past few years? What's coming up a lot and what do you think is is a big issue broadly for society? Because you also are making decisions about systemic issues in society that need changing. Mental health issues. I mean, I think that those touch points in the community come up after a number of years and the data is therefore a long-term project that we must be constantly uh, aware of. What about aged care? I mean, you know, there was another Royal Commission into aged care recently, but then when I did some research into that, I realised that there have been Royal Commissions and inquiries. I think there had been seven in the last nine years. Yes, there has been so much money spent on inquiries. You have to wonder why don't they just spend that on better food for a yeah. start? Or, or like, what is going on? Paying without, the nurses more? Yeah, or getting more nurses so people yeah. can have a shower every day. And actually, not letting people. I'm just going to say this: not letting people privatize. I think nursing homes should not be privatized. Personally, so but. I mean, you you are obviously very well placed to tell us. Like, mm. what do you think? Where are we headed with aged care? We've got an aging population still. Where are we heading? We are heading towards improvement, but the pace at which improvement is being um, found or or being achieved is obviously the thing that is really disturbing for the community at large. Mm. Um, I think that aged care is obviously an ongoing issue and Royal Commissions, which are formulated in response to growing community concern or outrage, they provide us with a baseline and then I feel that the job is on the coroner's courts and jurisdictions like ours in other states to take the recommendations, to see that they are implemented and to check back in. Are you doing the job as well as you could be? Is there room for improvement? We can't dictate what the next pressure point will be but we are nimble enough to be quite responsive to it should we see something come out of our data and we're always looking at the data to inform us. Do you have power? So if you've, there's been an inquiry, a Royal Commission, you're checking back in, the government said, yes, yes, we're going to do this, but they're not doing it. Do you have any power to tell them to do it? Well, I can make further recommendations. Uh, The court can make recommendations. The court doesn't have power to mandate 
anything. So to that extent, what we have is a voice um, and one would hope a reasonably persuasive voice for the community and we also have mechanisms to make the government respond to us in a public forum, the government of the day. So I think we have a few tools at our disposal to make sure that we keep monitoring a situation such as aged care, mental health, and our data will tell us how we're going and how the state of Victoria is going in response to implementation of those many recommendations from the various royal commissions. I think the most important thing you have is independence, isn't it? I mean, in so many other countries around the world, coroners don't have independence from the government. So the fact that you, you know, can release your own independent reports and you can monitor and you can keep the flame alive, as it were, is really the sharpest tool you have, isn't it? it? It's a really... You couldn't do your job properly without that strength and empowerment to say what we have to say sometimes. And keep saying it if you have to. Truth to power. Mm. Getting people in, as you said, getting people into a public hearing. Like that's powerful because most people wouldn't want to do that. If I had to go and give evidence or a statement at at your court and I said, no, I'm not doing that, there's no way. What happens to me? Uh, Well, there are a number of tools at our disposal. I could, um, if we have compelled you, we can get you brought to court. We can use police to bring a witness into court. We have contempt of court. We have um, mechanisms at our disposal. So it's not it's not that. a choice like, no. yeah, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not going to that. Would I be called a hostile witness if I had to be forced in by the police? Like what happens if I'm brought in and I'm, I don't want to do it? Are we can, literally carrying Emily in? Yeah. Like what happens do if I, she's Do in? I say no comment, I'm not answering that, and then that's reported? That could be the case. I, I don't. He's fascinated. I, I couldn't speak for every scenario, but there are many instances where people are very reluctant to give evidence. They can either get some legal reassurance, or it may be that the coroner hearing the matter says, actually, I think you're on, um, you have reasonable prospects for being reluctant. I, I understand why you're reluctant. I'm going to excuse you from okay. giving evidence. And um, if people are still ignoring the court we have other tools okay. that are I won't ignore that letter ever but <laughs> yeah but it, it's nice to know as well because some yeah as you said sometimes it's it's years later and people may not want to bring up things that happened in their past or their association so they you actually have a protective care of people as well if you think this this could be tricky for them or even dangerous for absolutely. them absolutely totally understand that it's a traumatic experience for anybody participating in this kind of a legal proceeding and again not only do the families of deceased people have support from our family liaison officers but witnesses do too we provide as much support as as is required for people to come to court and and help us with our very important job what keeps you in the job what do you like about it uh, everything i love the challenge of it i feel the responsibility i feel that i'm serving the community I love the idea that I can make a difference potentially to somebody's lives for the better. I enjoy investigating. All of my career has kind of laid foundations for this role. Um, It's always been something I've been very attracted to doing and it's an absolute honour to do it for the state of Victoria, the community at large. Mm, Because you started out uh, as a defence lawyer, is that right? Yes, yes, I started out in criminal law in defence. I went through a number of different positions. 
I went into an investigative prosecution type role. I did royal commissions. So a lot of the work that I've done over the years, many years, Mm -hmm. has been with a view to finding solutions or assisting to ensure that the circumstances of one case are not repeated. So when I did health and safety law, I would advise clients, we can't have this happen again, it's what we need to do. Um, All of that feeds into the work of a coroner. Mm. It's a hard job though. Yeah. There's no doubt that it's a heavy job mm. to to do for a long period of time and that vicarious trauma potentially um, is something I need to be mindful of. But, yes, it's an absolute honour to do the job. How are they with their care, you know, their programs and processes with your mental health? Really good. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously something that we make recommendations, we study, <laughs> we investigate these things all the time. So... Um, we need to make sure we're also example setting and um, we have a lot of supports in place. It's good to hear because we've so many times we've heard back in the day like the way of coping was going to the pub, you just don't talk about it You and then a lot of things snowball, don't they, and, and it goes pretty bad. Yeah, I think we've taken most of the stigma out of reaching out for help. I, I don't say that people aren't themselves still a little bit reticent but... For the community at large, I don't think that any of us see shame in reaching out for a bit of help and certainly I think that the coroners feel the same way. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. Hubaustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.